I was at a baseball game last week, and I looked around the stands, and there in front of me, sitting in a row, were 20 young nuns. And I wondered why, you know, why they were there. Uh, and, and so I spoke to, to one of them. I said, Sister, what, what brings you here and so many of you? And uh, she said, well, we are novices in a cloistered order. And that means that when we take our final vows, we will have to withdraw from the world. And so Mother Superior, uh, every year, when there's a class of novices, puts the money together so that the novices can have one last night out before they take their final vows. So there were 20 of them. Now, usually with a group like that, you seat them in a cluster in, in more than one row, but Mother Superior, being a very orderly person, put them all in the same row. And of course, they were excited by this, and they laughed, and they made, they made lots of noise. And then, the beer came out. And two light beers goes a long way with 20 novice nuns. There were two very dedicated baseball fans sitting behind them, two older gentlemen, very serious, dressed in all their Jays gear with their notepads ready to, to do the box scores. There was no playing Jays bingo on the phone for them. They were hardcore box, you know, pencil and box score uh, card. But as the game went on and the sisters began to make more and more noise, these two men, instead of speaking to them directly, they're Canadians, after all, too polite to do that, they started to say loudly, my God, there's so many nuns here. Let's go down to the 200 level. Maybe there's only going to be 10 nuns there. And the sisters quieted down. But then the noise level came up again as they were excited. It was an exciting game. And the other man said, well, maybe we should go down to the 100 levels. There might only be five nuns there. And one of the sisters turned around and said, and why don't you go to heck? There are no nuns there. <laughs> yeah, I got a million of them. Yeah. The joke's on us because we've learned to call the star of today's gospel story Doubting Thomas. But he's really questioning believing Thomas. To John, Thomas is a model disciple. In the other three Gospels, Peter is the model disciple. Rock-headed Peter. Thomas is smarter than Peter. John's Gospel also has the beloved disciple, by the way, whose name just happens to be John. But the model disciple is Thomas. Thomas isn't quiet like the others could be when they face things they don't understand. And he is probably the one they can all count on. They, they assume, it's like me at a meeting. Everybody assumes that he will say what everybody's thinking but is afraid to say. And so when Thomas isn't sure, he is not afraid to ask a question. But when he gets his answer, his response is 110% commitment. The punchline in today's gospel, and I'm sorry it was left off the screen, it was my, my fault uh, with the numbering. The punchline in today's gospel is John's punchline, and it's aimed at us. 
after Thomas professes his 110% faith by calling Jesus my Lord and my God. That, in John's Gospel, is the confession of faith of all confessions. After that, Jesus says to Thomas, probably looking over his head, have you believed because you have seen me? Happy are those who have not seen, yet have come to believe. That's you and me. Now, how do you imagine Jesus looks as he says, have you believed because you have seen me? Is he stern, angry, frustrated with Thomas? Or are Jesus' eyes gleaming with love? Is there a lilt, a laugh in his voice? Oh, Thomas, believing Thomas, now you get it. Imagine the generations who will get it because of stories like yours, how happy they will be. You see, in those scenes when Jesus looks and sees us beyond and behind the audience that he's addressing in the story, do we assume he judges us or does he celebrate us? And what if your trust or mine isn't quite 110% or 90% or 50%? I prefer to read and imagine Jesus looking on to us in love, speaking with a lilt, laughing at us a little, but laughing with us a lot, challenging us, yes, but celebrating us. Now, that's what I call a comic reading of the story of Thomas. Not comical, comic in the, in the literary sense. Seeing in the story events and conclusions that, to use a new catchphrase, spark joy. Now, the other gospel reading today I chose because it's all about joy. Two very familiar parables. And Luke says Jesus tells those stories and directs them at men who can't laugh to save their lives. They get the joke, but they know it's on them, and they don't laugh back, they take offense, and they get mad, dangerously mad. But Jesus' disciples and others who follow him around to see what he's, he's going to do next, to hear what he's going to say next, and some of those tax collectors and sinners that Jesus consorts with, what do they hear? They probably hear two stories about people doing crazy things. Stories about silly people who lose stuff. The man who was worthy of the care of a hundred sheep lets one wander away. A woman who is fortunate enough to have ten coins is careless enough to let one fall and roll into the darkest, dustiest corner of the house. And then they go looking as if their lives depend on finding what is lost. And when they find what they're looking for, what do they do? They throw parties. Crazy. Does the woman spend more than the value of that coin? Does the sheep herder serve mutton at the barbecue? 
Inquiring minds want to know. When the laughter dies down, that's when Jesus brings it home. So there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, and all the sinners look over at the righteous men. Snap. A perfectly legitimate reading and interpretation and imagining of the parables. As parables are meant to spark imagination, questions, and more often than not, joy and laughter. Earlier we read Flannery O'Connor's words, and she was one of the great short story writers of the 20th century. She lived a very short life, mostly, mostly confined at home because she lived with lupus. She was a devout Christian, a Catholic. But she had a very keen eye for both human nature and religion as they were expressed in what she called the Christ-haunted South. Many of her stories are dark. Her faith is not. And so she once said, Christianity is a strangely cheery religion. Is that so? When I traveled a lot from my work for Atlantic School of Theology, I preached in United Churches from coast to coast and coast to coast, from Bonavista to Haida Gwaii, from, from Yellowknife to Hamilton, Bermuda. And along the way, Presbyterian and United Church friends would ask the same question. How is preaching in one church different from the other? So I formulated an answer. I gave everyone the same answer. That I said, you, you know me, you know I like to inject some humor in my, pul in my preaching. And when I preach in a united church and say something that I think could be funny, people laugh right away. And when I preach in a Presbyterian church, they remain silent, but thank me sincerely for my good humor on the way out the door laugh, and I remember this so vividly for some reason, laugh is one of the most, well, it's an odd word, and it was one of the first difficult English words that I learned to read. There's a family legend that I was three years old when this happened. No, I think I was four, probably. My mother was teaching me to read. She didn't think I needed to wait to school. We didn't have much in those days, and I didn't have a lot of children's books. So I would pick up anything in print, the, the newspaper, the cereal box in the morning. There were two magazines that came into our house regularly. Now the Reader's Digest was always up in the bathroom. But the Presbyterian record was downstairs where I could reach it. So mom would see me trying to read, come over, sit beside me, and take me through sentences the old-fashioned way one word at a time. And I remember the day that I saw laugh in print for the first time. Believe it or not, I saw the word laugh in the Presbyterian record as it was then. She asked me to try to say it. Sound out the letters, L-A-U-G-H. Lug? No. I laughed at that strange word, laugh. And so I learned in laughter that the English language doesn't make any sense. 
We just have to live with it and do the best we can. And then when I got a little older, I, I discovered that our bathroom was a really great echo chamber. I wanted to make recordings in it. But I discovered that by reading and laughing out loud at those little stories in the Reader's Digest. Now that I've finally grown up, or mostly grown up, I value laughter more than ever. And my reading and imagining of the Bible is always comic first. Yours can be too, because the Bible can spark joy. Sometimes I doubt my usefulness to God when I'm in the pulpit. Often in preaching class, I wondered if a student was really pursuing the right vocation. But the Bible tells me that God can speak through an ass, and I know God often has to. I got a typically Presbyterian response to that one. <laughs> so on the way out, you'll say, hoo, 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 you said ass in church. Sometimes the silliness, just the, the absurdity of life in this world, life in my family, life in this church, sometime, sometimes the absurdity overwhelms me. And the Bible tells me that God prefers to work in this world in ways we can only call foolish, unbelievable, because they're human ways. And that's not how we think a God should behave. Like setting in motion a plan for the redemption of the universe in the womb of a teenage girl in Nazareth. Insert the name of your hometown here. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I, I scarce can take it in, but I can weep or laugh for joy. C.S. Lewis wrote a little book, and it's his story of his journey to Christian faith. He called it surprised by joy. Now, Lewis already knew what Christianity was about. It was his discovery of joy when he allowed just the possibility of God's loving presence in his life. That made all the difference. And you see, when we discover or recover the joy in our believing, loving, and living in that relationship with God that the Shorter Catechism says we can enjoy our ability to deal with the tough stuff, the difficulties, even the evil we encounter in life, our ability to face all of that honestly and without denial our courage and our hope grow when we don't give up on the joy of our faith and our relationship with God. Strangely cheery Christians are not happy clappy Joes who think the trouble will all go away if we just sing louder and clap more. Strangely cheery Christians face tough times hard truth, pain, without fear. Brian Stewart, a towering figure in Canadian broadcast journalism and a Presbyterian, has often described how he and his TV crew landed in some god-awful places, war zones, places where there had just been natural disasters, they usually met Christians who got there first, before any government agency or any other media. And I once heard Brian Stewart tell this story. 
of one of his camera people who often piped up and said, yeah, the Christians are already here with smiles on their faces, and they always offer us tea. Strangely cheery Christians, wherever people need help. People of God, relax, lighten up. Discipleship is serious business, but we don't have to get depressed about it. There is joy in the good news of the Easter season. People of God, get over yourselves, relax. Turn up the volume and live and laugh as Easter people. And in the words of that great city builder and restorer, the Mike Holmes of post-exilic Judah, Nehemiah, said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength.